Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to talk to you this morning about the ministry of reconciliation. You know, in light of, I was thinking a couple of weeks ago of Billy Graham passing away and what his life stands for. I was thinking about this season of the year, Easter, and the fact that a risen Savior changes everything. With all that floating in my mind, what did I want to preach this morning right before we move into the Easter season? And I want to remind us of what our lives are to be about. Like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. And this is a reminder to each of us in the church what our lives are to be about. And that we need to resist the urge to get caught up in lesser things and waste our lives. So I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And actually, we are going to back up to verse 6. And we're going to begin reading in verse 6 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to read all the way down through the very end of the chapter. And I want you to listen to how many times the word reconciliation is mentioned in this text. You see it over and over again. Reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciliation. Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God in Christ, uh, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, again today we want to thank you for being a God of redemption. Because without your heart for us, we would still be lost in our sin. And Lord, very plainly in this text, you you tell us what our lives are to be about. Lord, help us not to waste our lives. But may we labor and may we be good stewards of the gospel. May we live our lives for you. And every day may our eyes and our ears be open to what you have for us. May we be obedient that one day we may stand before you and be able to say, Father, what you gave me to do, I've done. And may we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, speak to our hearts now through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, it seems like men and women absolutely have to have a cause to live for. We need something to contribute to that is bigger than ourselves. And as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that I think this probably goes back to the creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were told not only that they needed to be fruitful and multiply, but also that they needed to get dominion over the earth. It seems like we need something to give ourselves to that we believe will offer us a way to make a positive contribution. And something that will make the world a better place. But you know, it's also interesting to me to see some of the things that men and women give their lives to. Some of the things that that people get involved in. It may be something like save the whales. Or save the spotted owl or something like that. Something having to do with the environment. And certainly as Christians we want to be good stewards of the environment, of the created order. I'm not denigrating that at all as long as we keep it in the right perspective. But obviously men can go off on a number of tangents here and their efforts at times, at times can be misguided. Again, it just seems like men and women need a cause. And as I continued to think about this, I decided to look up what the internet said about the top charities 
in, in this year and last year. And so I went online and according to Forbes, they listed out by, by terms of the monetary dollars given and spent the top 100 charities of the nation in 2017. It shouldn't surprise us at all that United Way topped the list. Second was the task force for global health. Then there was Feeding America. Fourth was the Salvation Army. Fifth was St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Sixth was Habitat for Humanity International. Seventh was Direct Relief. Uh, Rounding out the top ten was the YMCA, uh, Food for the Poor, and AmeriCares Foundation. I was surprised to see that the American Red Cross wasn't in the top 10. They actually came out number 20 and then Samaritan's Purse was number 22. Now folks, I want you to understand something. While it is not my intent to take away from any worthy recipient of our efforts and time and resources, I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians here that we do indeed as believers have a cause to live for, a cause that is bigger than ourselves. It is called the Great Commission. What a shame if we get involved in other causes and we forget about the greatest cause of all that Jesus gave to the church. In this section of chapter 5, Paul is speaking about just that. He's speaking about the Great Commission. And he is reminding us that we are ambassadors for Christ. And as such, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. Now, earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul spoke about his ministry. He wanted to be a minister with with good integrity. He wanted to be found as a faithful steward of the gospel. And he said, the the last thing I want to do is corrupt the word of God in any way. I, I, I try not to mishandle the word of God in any way. Very clearly, Paul had an extremely high view of the ministry and of his personal calling. And here he expands that calling not to just speak of himself, but also as it broadens out and applies to the corporate entity, the church as a whole. The fact of the matter is that we will all have to stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ. And he points out here in verse 10 that we will have to stand there and give an account of our lives to God. And in that moment, we will not be able to melt into the crowd. And no one will be able to pull the wool over God's eyes. No one will be able to uh, to fool God. The chances of that are nil. There's a certain sobering reality to this that he points out here. Again, the fact that we're all going to stand there, we're all going to give an account of our lives to God. And so what should our lives be about? We should be about the work of Christ, making much of Christ, being ambassadors for Christ. 
And in this chapter, he gives one of the clearest statements of that, what our ministry is to be and also what the motivations are for that ministry. And I want us to look at all of that. First of all, I want you to see the ministry that we have. Skip all the way down to verse 20. Paul points out the ministry we have. He summarizes it here by saying, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Isn't that beautiful? God making his appeal through us. If I were to ask you what is the most fundamental need of man today, what would you say? Now, if we were to think biblically about that question, the most fundamental need that mankind has today is the need to be reconciled to God. Now, what's implied in reconciliation, being reconciled to God? We need to be reconciled to God. Why? Because mankind is alienated from God. Without Christ, we were lost. We all sinned and came short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the condition of everybody on planet earth who does not know Jesus Christ in a personal way. They are alienated from God and because they're alienated from God, they need to be reconciled to God. The Bible very clearly shows reconciliation as the redemptive narrative that runs all the way through the Bible. It begins back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God made animal skins to cover them with. Something had to die. Something had to shed its blood in order for Adam and Eve to be covered. Their nakedness to be covered. And then we could move on from Adam and Eve and we could talk next about God's call upon Noah. And then Abraham and how God raised up Abraham, led him to a new land. And God said, I'm going to build a new nation through you and I'm going to bless your descendants. From there we would look at God's choice of Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons who came to constitute Israel. Then there's the call of Moses and the leading of the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and then finally into the promised land. There was the giving of the law to show man what God's standards for holiness are and man's helplessness up against those standards. Then there were the prophets calling men and women back to God. There was the whole Old Testament sacrificial system that pointed forward to Jesus Christ and the perfect sacrifice that he would offer on the cross. With the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you have the supreme act of redemption. And then you have the birth of the church in the book of Acts and the church there is commissioned to go into all the world with the good news of the gospel. And finally the Bible ends with Christ coming back for his bride. 
And so we see that the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation has to do with reconciliation and God's efforts to redeem mankind, to redeem a people for himself to be his own prized possession. And that means if we're going to have a heart like God's, then we need to see that the most significant and fundamental ministry that we can be about is the ministry of reconciliation. God has called us to be ambassadors. And verse 20 describes what it is about being an ambassador, what it is about our ministry that God has given to us. Folks, we need to understand what an ambassador does. An ambassador doesn't go in his own name. He goes in the name of somebody else. He doesn't go with his own message. He goes with the message of another. He doesn't go in his own power or authority. He goes in the power and authority of another. And that is our basic task as believers. It's precisely what Jesus was trying to get us to understand when he said in the Great Commission, All authority has been given unto me, both in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore into all the world. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's an urgency that's needed to our task. According to U.S. News, the population of the world is increasing by 77 million persons every year. That means every, every minute there are 146 new people in the world. Every hour there are 8,800. Every day there's 210,000 persons added to the globe while 155,000 die. Population growing, exploding every year, even when you take out the number of deaths. But how are we doing in our task of reaching the nations? Quite frankly, the church as a whole, globally, is not doing that well. Doing well in certain pockets, not doing that well overall. In the church, only 2 out of 10 know, according to one report, 2 out of 10 know the meaning of the Great Commission. Only 5 out of 10 in the church know what John 3.16 is. Only 6 out of 10 understand the word gospel. Folks, if we don't even know the terminology that describes our ministry, we don't even know the words and the meaning behind the words, it's pretty much a given that we're not going to be about the work that those words represent. It's no wonder that when we look at the work of the church up against this culture that we live in, the culture getting darker and darker by the year, quite frankly, the church today is backing up. We're not making the difference that we were intended to make and we don't even understand the urgency of the hour. Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white already unto harvest. 
I want you to think today about the circles of influence that God has given to you. Folks, each of us in here, if you will look at your life and your relationships in every segment of your life, God's given you and God's given me a mission field. And there's people in your circles of influence you can reach that the person on the pew next to you can't. You and I need to see that the Great Commission is to be personal. The responsibility of being ambassadors for Christ has to lay at my feet and it's got to lay at your feet. Every single one of us in some way or another as believers are to be wrapped up in the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples, even as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. He said, if you follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men God has a heart for the lost do we do I do you see we talk about the church reaching the nations who's the church you and I are the church we talk about the church leading worship going out into our mission field the world and being witnesses for Christ well who's the church again it's you and me we've got to take it personal who is in your circles of influence that you are to be a missionary to I've spoken to you about this before it shouldn't be anything new I want to challenge you, and some of you have done this, to write down names, maybe in the fly leaf of your Bible. People that you are constantly praying for, that you either know they don't know Christ, or you suspect they don't know Christ. And we need to be praying diligently for them, that God will engineer circumstances in such a way that they will be saved. And then open your eyes and ears to how God may use you in that process. You know, it amazes me some of the doors that God opens for us. I was speaking to a man in the church a couple of weeks ago. And I'm not going to bring up his name. I'm not going to bring up any any names. I'm going to keep it very generic. Because the young lady that he spoke of is from a, a country close to the gospel and close to missionaries. Millions and millions of people, the majority of whom are lost. He happened to be on an elevator here in in this country. He was getting on the same elevator with her and just struck up a conversation and, and she was eager to talk. One thing led to another and pretty soon he was talking to her about his faith in Christ and and she was hungry to know more. She was very open to know more and so his family formed a relationship with that young lady, had her into their home. She invited them to her home in her country and they went. He said, it blew us away. We came to understand who her father is 
We had no idea who her father is. Her father happens to be a key political leader in that nation. And he has influence over millions and millions of people. He said, who knew this young lady that we started a relationship with was the daughter of this man who is a mover and a shaker in the world. What might God do out of that relationship? Folks, it's amazing what God might end up doing through that relationship. Think about it. We never know who we might touch for the gospel. I'm sure Mordecai Ham had no idea as he was preaching nightly those revival meetings. There was a young man in those revival meetings, kept coming back every night. The last night was under conviction, got up from his chair and was pacing back and forth across the back. Finally came forward and yielded his life to faith in Jesus Christ. His name, Billy Graham. You never know. You never know who you might touch. You've got circles of influence. And I've got circles of influence. And folks, you and I need to take responsibility for our mission field. You are an ambassador for Christ. How are you doing at that? How, how are you doing? Who are you praying for right now that's lost? How are you building bridges to that person? What's going on? Anything? We're going to give account of all of that one day. I've given you a book in your sermon notes page, The Concentric Circles of Concern, Oscar Thompson. You ought to buy that book if you don't and go through the plan that he lays out there of adopting our different circles of influence and building bridges with people and gospel conversations and being an ambassador for Christ. Folks, that's what Paul is talking about here to the Corinthian church. That God is a God of reconciliation and God is carrying out his ministry of reconciliation through you and through me. He's using us in that process. That's the ministry that we have. Secondly, he gives motivations for that ministry and I won't get through all this list, I dare say. But the first motivation is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, look at verses uh, 10 and 11. Paul says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. When Paul considered the future, He first, here in chapter 5, the first thing he thought about was the heavenly body that God had prepared for him one day. In verse 1, he says, we know this, that, that if this earthly tent, which is our body, collapses, it's not the end. 
We have a building prepared for us from God. A building not made with human hands. And it's eternal in the heavens. And when Paul thought about that and thought about everything God has prepared for us in heaven one day, it gave him a great deal of comfort and encouragement. It was a blessed assurance to Paul. But then another thought struck him. Either at his death or at Christ's return, whatever happened first, he knew that he would have to give an account of his life to God. And he knew that in that moment he would have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now the judgment seat or the Bema seat as it's referred to here. Paul saw lots of those in the Greek and Roman towns where he traveled. Every town, every major Greek and Roman town, they had this area in the city square where the governing bodies would sit called the Bema seat. And they would make, in the secular courts, they would make decisions there. But it was not only a seat of judgment, it was also a seat of reward because the Olympic athletes, they would get called up to the judgment seat and they would receive their rewards. And so the Bema seat that Paul saw in his travels across the Roman Empire were, were these secular places, the, the Bema seats. But that's not what Paul is thinking of here. He's thinking of the heavenly equivalent of that, the Bema seat of Christ. That everybody will stand before one day and we will have to give an account of ourselves. Now for the Christian there is no fear of ultimate judgment or condemnation. There's not the fear of that. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But folks, that does not mean that Christians aren't going to have to give an account. In fact, in Romans 14, 12, the Bible says, So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And then Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, that our work is going to face scrutiny. And some of our work is going to be burned up like wood and hay and stubble. It's just going to be chaff. And some of our work will stand the test and it'll be like gold and silver and precious stones. But we'll all have to stand there and give an account. The fear of the Lord motivated Paul to look at his life differently. Paul wanted to live in such a way to please God. In fact, he told the Corinthians, it is a small thing to me that you try to judge me. For Paul, it's not the judgment of men that motivated him. It was the judgment of God that motivated him. Now, in thinking about the coming of the Lord, Paul also thought, in addition to thinking about his judgment, he thought about the lost man's judgment. If even a Christian is going to stand at the beam of seat of Christ and have to give an account of his life, if even a Christian is going to have to give an account, what in the world is a lost man going to do? A lost man is not going to have any hope whatsoever. That is going to be a horrible, horrible moment for the lost man. 
And so in regard to that, Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord or the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, of course, it's hard to decide whose fear Paul is speaking of. Is it his own fear? In other words, knowing the fear of the Lord ourselves when we have to stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. And so knowing that fear, Paul is saying, I want to be found as a faithful steward so I can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So is Paul talking about his own fear, own prospect of standing there? Or is it the fear for the lost man? When the lost man stands before the Lord and it's going to be absolute horrors for him. Whose fear is it? It's probably both. Now to be honest with you, in the context of this letter and this section of the letter, in all probability... Paul is chiefly speaking of his own fear of standing before the Lord and giving an account of his life. But again, certainly the lost man is going to fear. Nothing good is going to happen for him. Imagine the lost man standing before the bema seat, standing before the judgment seat of Christ and hearing those dreadful words, depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, could you imagine that? Turn with me to Revelation 20 for a moment. The passage known as the great white throne judgment passage. Revelation 20 verse 11. Notice what John says there. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now listen to this. You want to you know what that scene's going to be like? Look how sobering this is going to be. He says, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, underscore verse 15, and if anyone name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire wow could you imagine being there and your name not being in the book of life and being thrown into the lake of fire Everybody who has that experience is, was, was once somebody's little boy, somebody's little girl. Knowing the fear of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, Paul says, we persuade men. And it's present tense. 
we go on trying to persuade the uh, we go on trying to persuade men. It's what my life is about, Paul is saying. Does the fear of God motivate you in any way whatsoever to be about the Lord's business? Does the fear of what the lost are going to encounter motivate you in any way? Folks, are we so complacent in our own salvation that we really just don't care what anybody else is going to face? Do we just not care? I hope not. Now verses 12 and 13 of our text are are admittedly difficult. In verse 12 and 13, Paul says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. He's probably contrasting his ministry with that of many at Corinth. You see, they boasted about their own personal gifts. Some of them boasted about more of the sensational gifts, like speaking in tongues, for instance. Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians about the uselessness of speaking in tongues if no one knew what you were saying. And he spoke of how if a stranger walked into your midst and didn't know what was happening, he might think that you are out of your mind. He uses the same phrase that he uses here. Paul said, I would rather speak in in such a way that people can actually understand what I'm saying. And so these words are probably from that context. If we are out of our minds, it is for God. But if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And Paul's point here was that everything that he was doing was intended to be for the sake of men who need the gospel. He wasn't trying to personally show off on some kind of gift. He wasn't trying to build himself up, make himself look good, or commend himself to them again in any way. Everything that he did, he was trying to do for them because he understood what's at stake here. Again, what's at stake is people standing before the the Lord and experiencing the fear of God. Such fear dictated what he did. One motivation of his ministry. If fear was one motivation, I want you to notice what his second motivation was. The second motivation had to do not with fear, but with love. In verse 14, he talks secondly here about the compassion of Christ. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised now he's not talking about our love for Christ rather he's talking about Christ's love for us 
John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Paul said, That love compels me. There's something compelling about that. Paul never got over the expression of God's love in his own life. In God's grace and mercy and love, he chose the apostle Paul. There Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was a lost man. He later described himself as the chief of all sinners. And yet, even in that condition, God reached down and God saved him. The love of Christ. And Paul was motivated by that. And the greatest expression of God's love in regards to that is the substitution that he talks about in in verses 15 and 16. That Christ died in our place. Like 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now folks, obviously Paul does not mean that Christ died for all and therefore all died in the sense that everybody is saved. He's not talking about universalism here. To say that Christ died for everybody, that everybody is therefore automatically saved, would be a very unbiblical thought. Christ died for those who were His. In John's Gospel, Jesus over and over again made the distinction between those who are His and those who aren't. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The reason you do not listen to me, the reason you do not come to me, Jesus said, is because you're not mine. He went on to say in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He went on still further to say, this is the Father's will that I will lose Not even one person among those whom the Father gives to me. And so very clearly, Paul, verse 14 here, Paul is not saying that everyone benefits from Christ's death. But Christ's children certainly do. In love, Christ died for them. And Paul is saying right here, that kind of love motivates me. It has changed my life. When we understand substitution and that we deserve death, we deserve hell, and yet Christ hung on that cross and He took your place and He took my place. He died for you as your sin substitute. And He took all of the wrath of God against sin for you that you might have life. When you truly understand that and and how much love it was that held Christ to the cross that kind of love ought to change you and me and we ought to respond by, by being different new creations in Christ Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you're to glorify God in your bodies. Now, you know, some people say we shouldn't try to motivate people out of fear. Well, if fear's what works for some people, Paul's saying there's that side of the coin, but there's also the other side of the coin, love. So right here you have fear 
you have love. Both motivations. Both motivations of why we ought to be busy about our task of being ambassadors for Christ. Now let me just say about the final two. I'm not going to go over them. A third thing that ought to motivate us is the condition of men. He talks in verse 16 about we ought not to judge men according to the flesh. If we judge men according to the flesh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to ride through a nice area of town and we're going to see a man maybe there in a mansion and he's out in his driveway on a Saturday morning and he's cleaning and he's polishing his Ferrari, for instance. And we conclude that that man is well off. Well, he may not be well off at all. He may be empty inside. Oh, he gives the appearance of everything being okay, but he's lost. So we dare not judge people by the flesh. Paul said we don't even judge Christ according to the flesh anymore. He says we judged him that once once by the flesh, but we don't judge him that way anymore. You see, the Jews judged Jesus only by the flesh. Now, don't get me wrong, Christ came in the flesh. He was fully man, fully man, fully God, fully man, fully deity, both. But the Jews judged Jesus only according to the flesh one time. And Paul was right in there with them when he was Rabbi Saul. He judged Jesus simply according to the flesh. And you know what they concluded? They said, who is this man? Is this not the son of Joseph and Mary, and they took offense at Jesus. See, they didn't see Jesus for who he really was. Paul said, we don't even judge Jesus solely by the flesh anymore because he's more than that. He's also the blessed son of God. So he's saying, we're not to judge people just by the flesh. Flesh doesn't tell you the whole story. Not judging by the flesh ought to motivate motivate you to be an ambassador of Christ to anybody. Whatever they look like. Whatever social or economic standing they might have. Wonderful motivations that he gives. In closing, I want to read a passage to you out of Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Folks, God's given us a ministry. My feet and your feet ought to be beautiful. You know why? Because we ought to be busy about preaching a gospel of reconciliation. That lost men and women can be reconciled to a holy God. Amen? God has given to you and to me the ministry and the word of reconciliation. And that, that right there is the cause that's to drive your life and my life as believers. Oh sure, you might get wrapped up in some other cause, but you dare not get wrapped up in some other cause to to the neglect of this cause right here.
want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And as your heads are bowed and eyes closed, I want you to ask yourself, where are you involved in the Great Commission? Again, it's personal. It's meant for you. It's meant for me. Every single believer has a cause that is bigger than ourselves. And it's the gospel of Christ. Where are you involved in that? Think about your circles of influence. The Lord may be bringing somebody to your mind right now that you need to start praying for diligently every day. Every time the Lord brings their name to your mind, you ought to pray for them. Pray that God would engineer circumstances in their lives in such a way that they would be saved. God want to use you in that process. Maybe... The Lord has been speaking to your heart recently and He's showing you that you're the one who needs to be reconciled to God through Christ. I could be speaking to somebody in here this morning who's lost. You know you're lost and you need Christ. I'd like to pray with you. Father, as your people, especially at a time of year like this that we're entering into, Remind us that the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. We dare not live the same way. May our lives be all about the gospel. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.